Please open your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 3 and stand with me as we read God's Word. We're going to read verses 1 through 6 of Matthew chapter 3 about John the Baptist. Matthew 3, starting at verse 1. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. And Lord God, we thank you for your word today, and we pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would make us the people you want us to be. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. When you go to a concert, there is usually an opening act, and they serve a good purpose. They get the crowd ready for the main event. They're the warm-up. They get things rolling. They, uh, they help build anticipation, but they're not there to steal the show. They're supposed to do their thing and then disappear, sing their songs, say their words, then sit down and shut up. That was John the Baptist's role, and he did it very well. He was the forerunner to the king. He was the opener. He was the warm-up act for Jesus. Now, who was this John the Baptist? What do we know about him? Uh, what can we learn from his life? There are several things, and you'll see them in your, in your outlines today. But first off, he was sent from God. He was sent by God. Look at verse 1 of Matthew chapter 3. Now, in those days, in those days, what days? Those were the days between around 25 to 28 AD, the days right before the start of Jesus' public ministry. Matthew is what he's doing is fast forwarding 30 years or so in Jesus' life. The last time we saw Jesus, he had been, was being taken. Um, out of Egypt and back into Nazareth. And there he grew up. But Matthew fast forwards 30 years in Jesus' life. And when you ask the question, what days, you've got to go to Luke chapter 3. Because Luke chapter 3 pinpoints the exact days in which this took place. Luke 3 tells us, verse 1, Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. And Herod, that would be Herod Antipas, was tetrarch of Galilee. Philip, his brother, they were both sons of Herod the Great, was ruling, as was uh, Lysanias, who was not a son of Herod. So he makes it very clear what time had happened, and he said in that time the word of God came to John. He was sent by God. 
In John chapter, six, uh, John chapter 1 and verse 6, we read these words. There came a man sent by God whose name was John. This is John the Baptist. All four Gospels talk about him. All four introduce Jesus' ministry with the uh, introductory or preparatory work of John the Baptist, who was the son of the high priest Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth. But in Matthew, John the Baptist arrives on the scene fully grown, fully engaged in his role. He was a prophetic voice from God. A prophetic voice. In Luke chapter 1, verse 76, we read these words, spoken by his father Zacharias the priest, who prophesied and said this, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. John was speaking to a culture that hadn't heard a prophetic voice in over 400 years. It was a culture that had become hardened to the voice of God. It was a culture that had become accustomed to trying to earn their way to God through their own works and through their religious observances. He was a prophetic voice and he was chosen by God. If you look in Luke chapter 1 at the account of his birth, you see that his mom and dad did not have any kids and they were both advanced in years. But God was going to do something great and God promised that they would have a son. In verse 13 of Luke chapter 1, it says this, But the angel said to him, to Zacharias, Do not be afraid, for your petition has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you will give him the name John. See, he was named before he was ever even conceived. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of God. Jesus said of him that, among those born of women, there was no one greater than John the Baptist. Not Moses, not Abraham, not Elijah. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. That is what was was told of John the Baptist who had been chosen by God to fulfill a role. He was filled with the Holy Spirit before he was born. He was set apart for a special task before he was ever conceived. And from Matthew, what we get is a picture of a man who was humble and knew his calling. He knew his calling from God. He knew what God had called him to do. In Luke chapter 1, verse 80, we read that he lived out in the desert until the day of his public uh, appearance to Israel. He knew what God called him to do and he walked in the confidence that comes with knowing that you're doing just what God wants you to do. There's great freedom in that and there's great confidence in that. But why was a forerunner needed? Why, was there, uh, why did there need to be an opening act for Jesus? Why couldn't Jesus just show up one day and begin to do miracles and, and begin to do his thing? Well, it was because God was preparing hearts. God was preparing hearts. This was huge. Uh, God the Son became man in the person of Jesus Christ 
sent to earth on a mission to die for the sins of the world, to give his life as a ransom for many. And it's kind of like this. The bigger the act, the more need for an opening act or two. See, the prophets foretold his birth long before he ever came upon the scene. But there was need of a current voice, a contemporary who would speak in accord with what the prophets had spoken. John the Baptist was that man. He was a man on a mission. Man on a mission. A specific calling from God, and he fulfilled it beautifully. He did exactly what God called him to do. See, there's nothing more joyful in doing what, what you were meant to do. There's nothing more, more uh, joyful and peaceful and, and confidence-building to know that you are, are in, in, in God's will and, and you're fulfilling the role that he gave you to do. You see, some people go their whole lives without knowing their purpose, without knowing uh, their, their, their spot. And there's a lot of unsettledness with that. They don't know their God-given talent. They don't know their God-given calling. They're literally their vocation from God. But it brings peace to know that you're doing what he wants you to do. John was a man who, who knew that, and it showed. See, he was sent by God. He was a prophetic voice that was chosen by God. And he knew his calling. He knew that calling upon his life. The second thing we see about John is that he spoke God's message. Verse 1 says that he came preaching. He came proclaiming. He came proclaiming and preaching God's words. The message he uh, was sent to give was authoritative. See, preaching is more than just getting up in front of people and giving a talk. The Greek word for preaching, keruso, means actually uh, to proclaim something as a herald, to be a messenger of God. In the truest sense of the word, uh, preachers give an authoritative message that they have received from God, not something they think up on their own. See, when a herald would, would appear in those days, the people would not ask whether the herald was creative or whether he was original or intelligent in his preaching. What they wanted to know was what happened or what's going to happen. They want to know what God was saying. So they would not ask how good is he. They would ask what did he have to say about what God had to say and what was going to happen in the future. Because they knew that a message, when a message from a herald was that a message from a higher authority was being given. That the herald wasn't the authority. See, John came preaching. He was sent by God with a message from God. And he was, came preaching out in the wilderness. He didn't go into the tabernacles. He didn't go into the temples. He did not go into the middle of the city. He went out. Out into the wilderness. And his message was simple, and his message was challenging. It had two parts. Two parts. There was the call, first of all, to repent. Look at verse 2. He comes preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent. It's a simple message. We think we know what repent means. We think we, we, think we know what it means. We think it means to feel really bad for the stuff you do. You feel really bad, and you feel remorseful, and you go, I repent, I, I don't want to do that anymore, I'll, I'll stop. Sometimes it happens when we get caught. We get caught and we say, I, I won't do it anymore. I was wrong. I have sinned. But see, to repent does not mean just feeling bad about doing something wrong. 
Repent is primarily a change of mind resulting in changed actions. That's different from just feeling bad about doing something wrong. It's a turning to God. It's a no to the world and a yes to God. It involves, and it may very well involve sorrow over sin. Sometimes, though, it involves joy over forgiveness from sin. But it may well involve sorrow over sin, but that leads to a change in thinking and then acting. Look at Romans chapter 12. This is a passage of Scripture that I read over and over again when I was a brand new believer, college student, 1982. And I kept reading Romans 12 over and over again because I wanted so much for God to do for me in my life what I kept reading in Romans chapter 12. See, verse 1 says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Look at verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world. Do not be pushed into the world's mold, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be completely changed by the renewing of your mind. It's a change of mind. Change of mind resulting in changed actions. A change of mind that results in a changed heart and a changed thoughts and words and motives. See, the, the, the need to repent assumes a fundamental problem that we all share. It's that man's motives and actions are off course and they need to be radically changed. You don't say repent if everything's great. (laughs) Because of sin, a complete change is needed. That's the idea of repentance. It's not a matter, though, of God taking good people and making them better. Or good to great, or anything like that. It is a matter of God bringing people from spiritual death into life. See, we often think, too, of repentance as, as stopping uh, bad behavior, right? I repent, I'm not going to do that bad thing anymore. That's, that's, that's good, okay, that's part of it. We often think of it, repentance in that way in terms of not doing things that are clearly wrong, okay, and that would be right. <laughs> but there's another aspect to repentance that we sometimes miss. I miss this. Here's what it's about. Turning from seemingly good things that are done for the, for the wrong reasons, the wrong motives. Things we do to get God on our side. Things that we do to make God our debtor. Well, God, I did this, so you got to do that. God, I've done this and this and this, so we're really close, right? Uh, our religious observances that we somehow think make us more acceptable to God. We sometimes think it gains us more acceptance with God. So what God is also calling us to do is repent from the seemingly good things that we do that we think are going to gain us more acceptance with God. It's basically repenting of false righteousness. False righteousness. If you've repented, it means that you have reconsidered your view of God and of yourself and of sin. See, repentance is a part of acknowledging God is God and therefore worthy of our attention, worthy of our trust, 
worthy of our obedience. It's when you come to your senses and you want to follow God rather than your own ways. That's when repentance is present. There has been a change of mind and it leads to change actions. And it very well might include sorrow, but it also might include joy. So John the Baptist preached repent. Real popular message. Real popular amongst the Pharisees and the scribes, especially. The religious establishment hated to hear that. Now the other part of his preaching was this. Repent, or the kingdom of God is at hand, or the kingdom of heaven is how Matthew put it, synonymous with kingdom of God. He, the other part of his preaching was that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, so they better get ready. The kingdom of heaven. Now, there was not universal agreement back then, nor is there now, regarding exactly what the kingdom of heaven is, which creates some difficulties, okay? Uh, one popular first century assumption was that the Roman rule would be shattered, and it would bring in political peace and growing prosperity. The kingdom of heaven, God would come in and, and make their life better here on earth. Not a bad idea, but others saw it as purely spiritual. One thing is for sure. All three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they have the kingdom as the most important topic in Jesus' preaching and teaching. So it makes sense to figure out what it means, doesn't it? So, think about this. What did, what did John the Baptist preach about the kingdom of heaven? He Literally, the kingdom of the heavens. Here's what he, what he said. It is drawing near. It is, it is coming close. Uh, it is, he's, he's speaking about two Jews about a Messiah that was coming and then the era of the Messiah as a coming age, as a, a, a thing that was coming upon them. John says that age has now come. The same message, by the way, that Jesus and his disciples preached. Look at Matthew 4, verse 17. When Jesus began his ministry, here's what he said. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Same thing John the Baptist said. Look at Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 7. Jesus is sending the 12 out and he said, As you go, preach, proclaim as a herald. I'm your authority. And do, say this, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom. The kingdom is, in its basic sense, means that God's saving sovereignty or reign has appeared. That which was ambiguous before is now present and clear. And there are both static and dynamic ways to to look at the idea of kingdom. If you look at it in more of a static way, it says that the kingdom is the realm of God's rule. The realm of God's rule, pointing to an area or group of people over which he is sovereign. You can also view it in a dynamic way that the kingdom means rule rather than realm. It's not an area, but it points to the fact that God is doing something, that God is actively ruling in men's hearts and in the world. The kingdom viewed in this way is something that happens rather than than something that exists. 
however you see it, the kingdom is connected to Jesus. It's connected to Jesus. And John is saying Jesus will shortly appear. He is going to be here and with him the reign of God. With him the kingdom. God's sovereign rule. And it's a reason for repentance. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God rules. God reigns. He is to be followed as a sovereign king. So repent. And the kingdom came in with Jesus and his ministry of preaching of miracles, along with his death, his resurrection, and it will continue to the end of the age. John was speaking of Christ being present soon. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus would appear on the scene. God was doing something. He was ruling in Christ. After 400 years of silence, God was speaking through this prophet, speaking through John the Baptist, a prophet calling people to repentance and promising that someone greater was on the way. That was his message. And in verse 3, we see that Isaiah the prophet had already foretold that this message would come. Isaiah was referring to John when he said in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3, by the way, all four Gospels quote Isaiah 40. He says this, A voice is calling, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. The voice was the herald's voice. The highway was the king's highway. In Bible times, heralds went on before a coming king to announce his arrival. They would announce his arrival, but they would also prepare a safe travel route for the king who was coming. They made sure the road was smooth and uncluttered. Uh, There were actually even some rare paved roads in those days going to some important towns. But they would fill the holes in the roads. They would take away the debris and the litter in the middle of the road and tell everyone that the king was on his way. The king was coming. His duty was to proclaim and it was to prepare. And that's what John did. That was John's role. And God spoke to him and spoke through him to his generation. God wants to speak through you to your generation. To your family and friends and coworkers and teammates and neighbors. So they'll acknowledge his right to rule in their lives. So John the Baptist was sent by God. John the Baptist was speaking God's message. And then there's a third part of what John the Baptist was all about. And it's seen in his clothing and his food. In verse 4, he lived a very simple life. He lived a simple life. Most of us know, know nothing of a simple life. We live very complicated lives. We live very frantic lives. Um, there's not many books being written now called uh, The Simple Family. Uh, it's The Frantic Family. How do you overcome being a frantic family? But here's what, hap- here's what John was like. Look at verse 4. John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. Those were the clothes of a poor man. For nutrients, he ate locusts and wild honey. It's not that wild. Um, Locusts are big old grasshoppers. People still eat them today in the Middle East. It's not such an uncommon thing. It's a bit strange, it's a bit odd and all that. He definitely was not one of the religious establishment. 
He was clearly an outsider. There was nothing elaborate or attention-getting in his demeanor, in his dress, in his food. His food was the kind of food you could get out in the wild. You could find wild honey under rocks, in carcasses of dead animals, in stumps of trees, underground. He lived out in the wilderness. He did not wear a rich man's cloak, but a poor man's belt. Camel's hair, rough, not smooth. His clothes were also the clothes of a prophet. That's how Elijah dressed too. He was a lot like Elijah. In fact, so much so that some people thought he was Elijah. They thought that Elijah had come back to earth. But he lived simply. And it was uncomplicated. His life was uncomplicated. Now, there were issues. There were problems. We'll see next week some of the problems that happened with John the Baptist and came into his life because he did what God called him to do. But he was straightforward. And I think what, what epitomizes that is, is 2 Corinthians in chapter 11 and verse 3. And Paul said this, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds would be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Literally, the simplicity and purity of Christ. See, John's life was uncomplicated, and most of us can only dream of a life like that. Spiritually or practically speaking. John's life was uncluttered. Uncluttered. Spiritually, we're cluttered with lists of do's and don'ts. Forget about your to-do list for later on this afternoon. Think about the list of do's and don'ts you have that you carry around every day. Got to do this, can't do that. Got to make sure I'm right with God. Oh, oh no, if I don't do that, I'm not right with God. Oh no. And we, we walk around with a list of do's and don'ts that have become so cluttered. Or we leave it wide open and let the clutter blow in by a, a, a license to do anything. You go legalism, you go license. Either way, clutter collects. <laughs> you live with a, a, a list of do's and don'ts, you're going to be pretty confused. You live with a license to, that anything goes. Well, anything's going to come into your life then. It's going to cause confusion, and it's going to be enslaving. Galatians 5.16 says, walk by the Spirit. You won't carry out the desire of the flesh. See, God wants you to walk in the freedom that you have in Christ, governed by His Spirit. Not a list of do's and don'ts on one hand, or a license to do anything on the other, but simply grace and mercy each day. See, John was unentangled by a lot of the things we get entangled up in. 2 Timothy, in chapter 2, speaks of soldiers in active service. Verse 4, 2 Timothy 2, 4, No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life, so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. See, John was unentangled. He was unhindered by the, many of the things that get caught up in our lives and get, get us weighed down. 
But there's something about John, it would be really easy to say, well, hey, he was really simple because he ate simple food and he wore simple clothes. It wasn't his food and it wasn't his clothes that set him apart. It was his single-minded devotion to God. It was his it was his fixed mind on Jesus. It was the simplicity and purity of his devotion to Christ that he was the primary forerunner of Jesus coming onto the scene to begin his ministry. So there was this simplicity, both physically and spiritually, that was exceptional. One to which we, we think, how can I get unentangled to live such an a undivided life? It starts in the heart with, with, with asking God to give us an undivided heart. Do you want to be free? Let go of the stuff you're clinging to for security. We are, we are being bombarded today with that idea. We have the opportunity right now to let go of the things we are holding on to uh, for security because they're being taken from us, right? Whether it's your retirement account or your job or other financial type securities, well, God is, is maybe bringing something about to help us not hold on so tight. And maybe it leads to more prayer. Maybe it leads to more dependence. Maybe it leads to more of a single-minded focus on Jesus. So, how did people respond to John's preaching? What did they do? Uh, right off the bat, well, first of all, this guy sent from God with God's message, living such a simple life. It's amazing the results. He made a significant impact. Uh, He made a difference. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 tells us that Jerusalem was going out to him. He's out in the wilderness. Hot, dusty, not in the shade. He's going out where it's uncomfortable. That's where he grew up, by the way, out in the desert. The Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan. People went out to him. They were flocking to John the Baptist. They, he wasn't touchy-feely. He was straightforward. He didn't mince words. And people wanted to hear what he had to say. They were attracted to him like bees to honey. They, they went to him, and as a result, several significant things began to happen. The first thing we see is that God's forgiveness was being sought. People were wanting to be forgiven by God for their sins. They confessed their sins. Now the order here says that they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. So it signifies some sort of a concurrent action that was going on. They were confessing their sins, so then he was baptizing them. Confessing sins is admitting a need for God's forgiveness. It's a simple, simple act. It's, a, it's, it's saying, God, I need to be cleansed from the dirt of everyday life here on earth. Matthew and Luke both speak of, G, of John the Baptist preaching a, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As a result, lives were being changed. How do we know that? Because in verse 6, They were being baptized by him. 
Now, we usually signify, we usually think of baptism as signifying a change that already took place. Because some people in our culture get baptized years after they come to faith in Christ or years after they turn to God. But baptism was signifying their repentance. That in His kindness, God had granted them repentance. Jews were baptizing uh, in those days Gentiles who became proselytes to Judaism. Okay? If you were a Gentile, the Jews would bapti- get you baptized. And, and what that would say is you were an outsider who was now seeking entrance into the people of God. But here's the amazing thing. John was baptizing Jews. So in effect, the Jews were saying, we are outsiders and we are seeking entrance into the people of God. They're basically saying our system doesn't work. We need what what the Messiah is going to bring. Now, we usually think of baptism as a religious ceremony. And we miss some of its meaning. See, in those days, baptism wasn't something you did because it was expected of you or because it was time or, or whatever. It, you did it knowing it meant things were changing in your life. That you desired to be changed by God. And the baptism didn't change you, but was signifying that a change was taking place, that a change was being ushered in, that a change of heart had happened and a change of mind that would result in changed actions. The, the word baptism means to, uh, to dip or to plunge or to immerse. Uh, and in the passive, it means to actually be drowned. Drowned. It is used, uh, the same word is used of ships sinking. There's this violent imagery that goes along with baptism that's often ignored. Baptism signifies death to your old way of life. And repentance is needed due to our identification with a sinner named Adam. Baptism signifies our identification with a deliverer named Jesus. It signifies our total change of heart and mind and spiritual standing before God. Out of death into life. That's why Jesus says, baptize them. Make disciples and then baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It was showing to a watching world that things were changing. And guess what? If the life didn't change, you can't just claim the baptism. Hey, I got baptized. Show it. Show me the life. <laughs> Show me the life. See, a lot of the people that went out to John and got baptized never came to faith in Christ. He was the forerunner of the king. He was preparing them to know Christ. John's ministry was to call people to repent in preparation for the coming of God's Messiah who would forgive them and save them from their sins. And so in all this, we see this idea of people being prepared for Jesus. John's ministry was a preparatory one. He was preparing people for the only one who could save people from their sins. The only one who could save them from the power and the penalty of sin. See, if you're not yet a believer, God wants you to reconsider your view 
of Him and yourself in sin and trust in Jesus who paid for sin and offers salvation freely by grace apart from works. God, through the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross, fully accomplished salvation and wants to rescue you from the judgment of, for sin into fellowship with Him because He loves you. You see, God used John the Baptist in big ways. John the Baptist is, is, uh, is misunderstood a lot in Scripture. But John knew his place in God's kingdom. He knew he wasn't the Messiah. He didn't point people to himself, but to Jesus. His own words testify to that. He said in verse 11, right here in Matthew 3, the one who's coming after me is mightier than me. He says to Jesus in verse 14 here, I have need to be baptized by you, Jesus. They asked him point blank at one point, are you the Christ or Elijah or the prophet? And his response, I'm just a voice. I'm just a voice. I'm a herald. He says of of Jesus in in John 1 verse 26 that I am unfit to untie his his sandals. He said in in John 1 that he has a higher rank than me. That he is the son of God. God in the flesh. He said of Jesus that he must increase and I must decrease. See, John is is an example worthy to be followed. A humble forerunner sent by God who spoke God's message, who simply followed God and God made an impact through his life. That's something that we can look to as an example because God wants to use you to make a difference too. God wants to, to use you for good. Isn't that what we all want? To be significant in some way? To know that it makes a difference that we're around? That the spot we fill isn't just inconsequential, but somehow significant in God's sight? That every one of us is significant in God's sight? Not unimportant? Not ignored? Not forgotten? See, God can even use you to help others see the significance of their life by taking a genuine interest in them, by by reminding them of the impact that their life has had upon yours or upon others. A week ago, I called one of my mentors in life that I've known for many, many years, and I just left him a message, and I said, thank you. I've done this before, but I said, thank you for your part in my life. I thank God for you. He was instrumental in me coming to Christ. And then entering into ministry. I got a call back from him this week. He said, you know, you were the next guy on my list to call because God had impressed it upon his heart to go back and call the men that he had used in their life, men that are in ministry today that this man had had an impact upon. And he was going, looping back, calling each one of us and saying, I love you. I'm proud of you. I'm praying for you. You know what that does? That bolsters you, doesn't it? That encourages you. See, if you're wondering what you were meant to do in life, your task in general is to bring glory to God. The specifics, that's God's task to let you know about. But there is a sense in which every Christian is called to be like John the Baptist. Whatever God's calling on your life, Go where he sends you. 
Speak the message He gives you to speak. Single-heartedly follow Jesus. Trust God to use you for His glory, to make an impact through you. Point people to Jesus, not yourself. I guarantee you God will call you to do something that you think is beyond your ability to do, which will give you all the more reason to trust Him and not your own understanding. I like the words of Philip Brooks, an old preacher from a long time ago, that said, do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your tasks. God, I can't do it. Give me the strength to do what you've called me to do. Do it through me. Do it in me and through me. Because what God calls you to do, he will enable you to do by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm 100% sure of that. And God will use you as you make yourself available to him. God, here I am, use me in whatever way you see fit. Because I firmly am convinced that the world has yet to see what God will do through the man, woman, boy, girl, family, church, community of believers that fully gives themselves to God for his use. Let's pray. Lord God, we we stand in awe of you because how great you are and how magnificent you are and how, how above above us you are and we thank you lord that you you call us to to things that we we can't do on our own thank you lord that you've given us a a wonderful message the gospel to live and share and lord uh we pray that you would use uh your word and our and our brothers and sisters to help us be a a bit more uncluttered in life to be single-mindedly devoted to you and we will stand back and see what you will do, and praise you for it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.